Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light for our paths. Help us keep your righteous rules. In our severe affliction, give us life through your word. Accept the free and willing offerings of our praises to you and teach us your rules. Our lives are filled with work, but we do not forget your law. The wicked may be against us, but we do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are our treasure forever. They are a joy to our hearts. Incline our hearts to perform all your word says forever to the end. Amen. As I mentioned, we are in our final topic for our series on the Apostles' Creed, which are statements uh, of the Christian faith uh, that Christians believe in, that, that we believe uh, reflect what the Scriptures teach. Uh, we've been through quite a journey, uh, and today we've come to our final sermon topic. Right? We've been through kind of line by line, and today we're looking at Jesus' return. Now, when it comes to the end times and the topic of Jesus' return, Christians have often had pretty funny views, Right? Uh, we might even imagine or think of the doomsday uh, kind of preppers, right? people who are trying to uh, prepare for this final doomsday, uh, and they build big bunks uh, uh, under their houses and shelters. Uh, they stockpile this food and maybe load themselves up with ammunition and guns, ready for the end of the world. It sounds more like a preparing for a zombie apocalypse, really, than the end of the world, but that's what they do. Or, or you might know Christians who get a bit obsessed uh, with calculating the date of Jesus' return. Now, about six years ago, many of you might know this guy called Harold Camping, who predicted that the world will end on May 21st, 2011. Right? Who remembers that? Harold Camping guy, yep. Uh, at Tuong Shopping Center, I think somebody, his followers, uh, uh, rented out the advertising space uh, and, and put up on a sign, right? Judgment Day, May 21st. And uh, some of Camping's followers even uh, sold their property and their assets and just stayed at home, waiting. And then when May 22 rocked around, uh, they had nothing left to their names because they sold everything, right? Now, Steve's brother had told him that he knew a man in his church who was getting a little bit obsessed over the end times. And he predicted openly that the end of the world would happen in September 2015. And so he told his son, don't worry about renewing your car registration for four years. It's cheaper just to do it for one because the end of the world will happen anyway, right? Now, stories like this are pretty common. Uh, maybe you know people like that. Uh, and we obviously need to be very careful about people who try to predict the day that Jesus will return. That is not a game that we Christians are supposed to be playing. Now, when, when you hear stories like these, and you know of people who are a little too obsessed with the signs of the end times, it can make you uh, kind of go to the other extreme, right? You're embarrassed by these obsessed Christians who think about the end times, so you go the opposite direction, and you become desensitized right, to the issues of the end times. You, you get numbed to the reality of Jesus' return. Or we can get to a point where organizing our lives around the return of Jesus sounds like crazy Christian people talk. Right? And we neglect thinking about that because we already be associated with those crazy Christians. So what we do is we end up relegating Jesus' return to the final part of the story of history, rather than the reality that impacts us right here and right now. Right? We, we go to the other extreme, right? we, we, we ignore it. But that's a mistake. There's an old German proverb that says, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I didn't know it was German, but anyway, there you go. Steve tells us it's a German proverb, right? Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, which means don't get rid of the good stuff along with the bad stuff. And there is so much good, so much that's important about Jesus' second coming that we need to hang on to. 
Now, as we open our passage today, Paul has to address an issue that's happening in the Thessalonian church. Um, Something's happened to them that has hit them pretty hard in their faith and discouraged them. And he writes this letter to encourage them in their faith and to remind them about the reality, the certainty of Jesus' return. Now, we start in chapter 4, verse 13, where Paul raises a concern. Chapter 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Now, what is it that these Thessalonian Christians are uninformed about? Now, what is it that they don't know? Well, it seems to be that they had a misunderstanding among themselves, that if they had died before Jesus returned, then somehow you would miss out. Because in those days, they fully expected Jesus to return at any time. But then when people died in the church, they thought maybe they wouldn't see Jesus. Now, it's unlikely that Paul forgot to tell them about what's going to happen, right? It seems more likely that it's because of their grief that they were experiencing that they forgot about these truths that that the Apostle Paul had taught them. The misunderstanding seems to come from death and grieving. Having lost brothers and sisters within the church, their grief was overwhelming them, and their grief was not allowing them to believe about Jesus coming back again and, and, and the truths that Paul had taught them. Now, as a pastor, this makes sense to me. Now, it's in the storm of life's difficulties and heartbreak and disappointment and grief uh, that we truly believe, uh, what we truly believe about the gospel is put to test. Right? When things are going well, it's easy to believe in Jesus, in the gospel and the hope. But when the trials and the testing and the grief and the suffering comes, that's when it's put to the test. And, and Steve and myself in our church, we've seen people who have uh, lost loved ones and have grieved but have continued to be firm in their faith. We've seen people who have persevered through really difficult trials of long-term unemployment, of, of infertility, of, of other types of griefs that this life throws out. And we've seen them hold firm to their belief in Jesus and their hope of eternity to come. But Steve and I have also seen people who have walked away because life just got too hard. We've seen people who have slowly shrunk back, stopped trusting God and start blaming God instead. There are always people who stand firm on the solid ground, aren't there? And there are others who sink uh, in, in, in the instability of their faith and trust in Jesus. So the Apostle Paul acts for a moment as their pastor in this passage and wants to comfort them and help them to understand something. Now, what is it that he wants them to know? Well, he wants them to understand that for Christians, death is just like being asleep, right? That death is just like being asleep. Now, when someone is asleep, our expectation is that they will wake up, right? And uh, some of you here look like you could do with some extra sleep. Uh, and if the sermon would have gone forever, maybe you'd never wake up, Right? But everyone expects people who fall asleep to wake up. The last night you went to sleep, you expect to wake up in the morning, and you did. And you woke up, and somehow you managed to get yourself to church, and then you continue on your day, and then you'll fall asleep again, and then you expect to wake up again, right? Now, let's not, let's not think about those who die in their sleep, but the normal expectation is that sleep is what you wake up from. And that is why the Bible so often uses the metaphor of sleep to describe death for those who believe use a sleep to describe death as sleep for those who trust in Jesus. Because death 
which may seem very final to people who have no hope, the reality is that it's just like sleep that you wake up from. Now, why is it that Christians should expect that death is just like going to sleep and knowing that you'll wake up again? Well, he, he, Paul tells us, right, in verse 14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. See, the key to death being just like sleep is because Jesus woke up from the dead, right? He rose from the dead. And just as Jesus rose from the dead, so also we will rise from our death if we were to die. It will be just like waking up from sleep. The same power that brought Jesus back to life is the same power that will bring Christians back to life as well. Now, Paul adds in verse 15 that he got a special word from the Lord about this, right? And the basic word that he got from God is that Christians who have died before the return of Jesus will not miss out, right? It's not that we who are alive will see Jesus first and then they will trail far behind and maybe not make it. In fact, he goes on to explain that they won't miss out, right? Now, he sheds some light on what will happen. The Bible is pretty silent, right, about what will happen on that final day. There's very little details, but these couple of verses should give us uh, as much of the detail as we kind of need, really. Looking at verse 16, right, chapter 4, verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then those who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. The first thing he tells them is in verse 16. The announcement of the, with, uh, it begins with the announcement of the return of Jesus, right? Uh, it's a big announcement. Now, a few, uh, about a month ago, we had a fire drill in our church. Uh, I'm not sure if you ever had a fire drill in church before, but for some reason in Queensland, it's required that we do a fire drill during the service. We really should check that. Who's ever been to a fire drill in a church before? It's weird, right? Anyway, we had one a month ago at the end of the service, and our fire warden came in with his fire warden hat. It looked like just a toy hat, but it was a real fire hat. Uh, and he came in, and he was shouting out, fire, fire, fire. It just happened that it was during our final song, and we were singing, I think, This I Believe or something, and we were really belting it out, and the band was going for it, and no one heard our poor fire warden saying, fire, fire, fire. So after a few moments of awkwardness, he said it again, and the, the, the song leader saw that, kind of signaled to the band. The band kind of wound down in a very non-worshipful way, and then we kind of just filtered out to the street to kind of finish off our fire drill. Right? It's kind of weird. Second service was a lot better. Instead of using fire, 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 the warden, which is Chris, I believe, came in, and rather than using his voice, he put on the siren. Whoop, 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 right? I think that was the sound. It was annoying, and then we all knew what to do. And we all got out to the street, right? You see, we, we, the, 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 the coming of Jesus is going to be like that, right? Uh, there will be a threefold blast that will be clear for everyone to hear, and everyone uh, will never miss it. it. It cannot be ignored. And we're told in this passage what the threefold blast is, right? The first is a cry of command from Jesus himself. The second is a booming voice from the archangel, and finally it's the sound of the trumpet, right, which would blast throughout uh, uh, the globe, really. The cry, the voice, the trumpet blast are, are Old Testament images uh, uh, that signal the day of the Lord, right, the last day, judgment day, 
it's not going to be some kind of secret return. Right? You know, sometimes we may have this idea that there's going to be some secret return where, where God will bring some secret people into a secret party. No, right? The Bible's clear. Right? That this final day will be clear for everyone. It will be impossible to ignore or miss. The final day will come with this giant threefold blast announcing it. And the point of all this that, uh, that Paul's making is in verse 16 is this. Those who have died in Christ... Christians who have died before Jesus' coming, they will be the first to be raised back to life. After he announces his return, the first to be raised back to life are those who have died who are in Christ. And after they have been raised to meet Jesus, then those of us who are still alive will join them with Jesus. Uh, And and the language here is is one of kind of a, a, a city having heard the announcement of the arriving dignitary or king or victor, and the city goes out to meet this dignitary. And then they bring this dignitary back into the city. Right? It's kind of what's happening here, right? Because it's not that we're being raised to, to heaven. It seems that we're being raised to meet Jesus as he returns and, and brings in judgment day and renews creation. Right? To restore all things. Now, the, the exact detail, whether we're going or coming, it's, it's all a bit confusing because it's not very clear what the Bible says. But what is clear and all that we need to know is that he will return. And those whom we have loved, who trust in the Lord, who have died before us, will not miss out, and neither will we. At Jesus' second coming, all who are in Christ will certainly meet with Jesus and be with him forever. And that is why Paul is telling them these things, so that they will not have a grief that is without hope, that they will not have a sadness which is without hope, if you go back to the start of the passage, at the end of verse 13, Paul says, I am telling you these things that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Right? He tells them, you're sad, deeply sad at the loss of your loved ones. Your hearts are breaking, but there is hope. Jesus is alive. That means that they will be made alive one day as well. Jesus is coming, and that means they will not miss out. Now, in applying this passage uh, to ourselves, there are three things, right, that, that Steve wants to say, right? And I'm going to add a few things to this, right? Two things that are quick. It's just one thing that's quick because I'm going to make one not quick. And there's one thing that's going to be a bit longer as well. Now, the first thing here is, the first quick thing is to be ready for grief, right? Be ready for grief. None of us will be immune from grief in our lifetime. And the longer that you live, the more likely that you are to experience pain and sadness and grief that you may feel is overwhelming. Now, in my life, this is me, not Steve's life, in my life, I've, I've noticed God's been really gracious that the amount of uh, trials and grief that I face as I got older, they seem to be, uh, they slowly get serious, right? And God is like kind of preparing me with smaller griefs uh, so that I can deal with medium griefs to deal with stronger griefs. Now, I see that as a mercy of God because other people in very, very young lives face all kinds of tragedy that's unimaginable to, to most of us. But the reality is that all of us will face it. And the longer we live, <coughs> the likelihood of facing <coughs> overwhelming grief is high. There are people in our community who have experienced that kind of grief and that kind of suffering. Uh, it's mainly young people in the service. And I'm not going to assume that it's because you're young. It doesn't mean you haven't faced really big hardships. But certainly I know in the first service, in our brothers and sisters there, some of them who have lived a long life, 
have faced a lot of grief. Some have had intractable pain for decades of their life. Some are facing imminent death with stage 4 cancer. Others have lost children and grandchildren in the past couple of years. Someone has just lost a mum two weeks ago uh, to death. You know, these are the kind of people that we can be speaking to to prepare ourselves for the grief that is to come, to ask them, <clears throat> why is it they can still keep coming to church? Why do they still worship Jesus? Why do they still trust him in the face of all these sufferings? Ask them so they can encourage you and prepare you for the tough days that are to come. Second thing here, it's okay to grieve. Right? So be ready for grief, and it's okay to grieve. You see, Paul doesn't say to the Thessalonians, do not grieve, just have hope. Right? He says to them, grieve with hope, not do not grieve. But let's not think that in the face of death, we must smile <coughs> and be cheerful and happy. Or that if you're not happy that your loved ones are with Jesus, that somehow your faith is lacking. Right? There is no correlation between grieving and faith, in that sense. In fact, those who grieve, uh, so those who have faith will grieve because of the loss of life, right? We all know Jesus himself. You all know the story of Lazarus, his, his really good friend, and, and, and his sisters, Mary and Martha? Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And yet when he came to the tomb <clears throat> and he smelt the stench of death, he wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. Everyone knows that as a trivia, right? Jesus, who was about to raise his friend from the dead, who was going to be the resurrection and the life, wept at his friend's tomb. Because death is an unnatural inclusion into this world. It is full of grief and sadness. It is not meant to be. And so we are allowed to grieve as Christians, aren't we? Now, <clears throat> our grief is different, right? The way we experience grief in life. Loving a loved one is not something that we, we just get over. We, 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 we can continue on and move on from. Uh, it's a journey, isn't it, that we take. That, a journey that sometimes never ends, depending on how overwhelming that grief is. Now, this is uh, my inclusion to this uh, sermon, not Steve's words, but there's a reflection I've made over the last few years about grieving. It's often those who feel like they've uh, grieved over really serious things, uh, which feel like the pain that others go through are not quite as severe uh, because what they go through isn't as serious uh, as what they go through. Now, many of you here know uh, that uh, my family is no stranger to grief in some sense. Uh, we have four daughters, but our third daughter died a few days after she was born. <clears throat> and one of the most helpful things that uh, I read in the first few days before she died uh, was to prepare myself for the grief that will come. <clears throat> I can't remember the book's name anymore because uh, it was a difficult time. But I remember clearly what I read. And it said, and it was a warning and encouragement to know that grieving happens differently for different people. And it was a warning for married couples especially in the face of losing a child that oftentimes it can break a marriage because husband and wife expect the others to grieve in the same way and they have these expectations for how sad they should feel and how they should express it. And this book said, don't do that, right? We all have our own ways of dealing with grief, and we are not to, to impose on the other how they should understand and how they should feel. But instead, we should accept how the other person grieves and be there to support and comfort each other in the way that they understand. And I think that really helped, because Faith and I grieved in very different ways uh, over the loss of our daughter. 
she wanted to grieve in very open ways, uh, and she wanted to keep going to the grave. Whereas for me, uh, I have a mural of my daughter in my desk, in my study, and I only grieve on my own, right? not in front of other people. So that was good for us to be able to know that we do it differently. And it's important for us as a community as well, because I know that some of you have been exposed to people kind of belittling your grief or saying things that are hurtful in your grief. Things like, don't worry, you're young, you have another child. Someone said that to us, actually, when we lost our daughter. Or, you know, your mother's in, ho- in heaven, so don't be sad. You know, they, they're well-meaning words that can be quite hurtful. And, and try and be gracious and forgiving when people say things like that. And on your part, try to imagine what the grief that other people feel is like. You might not understand it. Right? So a five-year-old who's sort of had their pet guinea pig die, experiencing death for the first time, will experience it in an excruciating way. You can't belittle a child's grief just because it's only a guinea pig. You know what I mean? And you're like, oh, you know, I've, I've lost so many brothers and sisters and children in my life. You have no idea. And then you don't show comfort. It doesn't work like that, right? Everyone experiences grief differently. But we are those who grieve with hope. It's the point of this passage, isn't it? The final point of application here is that we grieve with hope. Now, at first glance, that might sound contradictory or even silly. But grieving with hope is possible because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. You see, what gives us hope is not some vague, wishy-washy hope that our loved ones are in a better place or that God has gained a new angel in his heaven. See, our hope is grounded in the reality of the resurrection and in the imminent return of Jesus. Now, the question you might ask is, how, how do I know that I'm grieving with hope? Or how do I know that I'm not just grieving hopelessly, but I'm grieving with hope? Well, your world might be broken, but not to the point where you are only and consistently feeling despair. You know, the word despair it literally means hopelessness, isn't it? That you grieve, but not to the point where you are hopeless. Knowing that Jesus is alive and that his resurrection and second coming guarantee our reunion with our loved ones anchors us. Right? It gives us hope to know that Jesus' resurrection guarantees the life that is to come. Now, overwhelming grief shatters our world, but resurrection hope keeps us steady. Overwhelming grief is exhausting, but resurrection hope gives us rest in the exhaustion. Overwhelming grief leads to stress, anxiety, and confusion, but resurrection hope gives us peace, even a peace that surpasses understanding. Grief robs us of our joy, but hope restores that joy. It's not like a switch, right, that flicks from no joy to full joy. It's a process of being restored to joy as you hold on to the hope of the gospel. Now, because of Jesus' resurrection, we can grieve with hope, but in light of his second coming, we need to also be ready. And that's the second major point here of the sermon, right? Being ready for Jesus' return. Be ready. Now, we all know that when something big is about to happen, we get ready. Right? Most of you have just finished a whole long uh, year of academics and you just had big exams. Some of you, your final exams for your graduation. There is not a chance in the world that you didn't get ready for the exam. Now, maybe you didn't get ready as much as you would like, but at least in principle, you knew to get ready, right, to do those final exams. It's the same thing if you go for a big job interview. Right? You, you, you prepare yourself and be ready. You'll research what role it is you're doing, the company you're going to work for. You will get ready. If you're about to sit a driver's test right, to get your license, you'll get ready. 
You want to spend all those hours practicing in a car beside your friend who's so scared at the way you're driving, right? You get ready, fulfilling your 50, 100 hours of requirements. When something's important and you know it's coming up, you get ready. We all know this. We don't need to be told, which is what Paul says to the Thessalonian church, right? In chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, you already know that Jesus will come back at any moment. And he's saying to us as well, we know the scripture's teaching that Jesus can return at any time. <clears throat> but you know who doesn't know? Do you know who doesn't know? Verse 3. Everyone else in our world doesn't know this. They don't believe it, right? There are those who say there is peace and security. That they're not believers. What they believe is that in this world there is peace and security. Now, I'm not sure if you know much about the first century world and Thessalonica, right? It's a small, uh, kind of sleepy town. They had terrible defenses, right? Uh, they had an uh, unprotected shoreline that could have been attacked from anywhere. They're kind of like Taiwan. Sorry to the Taiwanese. Okay? Um, and because they were now part of the Roman colony, they thought themselves safe, right? And they would call out peace and security. If you're a history buff, you know about the Pax Romana, which is Latin for the peace of Rome. Uh, and all these Roman colonies thought they were safe because they were part of the Roman Empire, the great Roman Empire. You know, we live in a time that is way more peaceful and way more secure than Pax Romana. You know, we live in a world which in human history is the safest that it's ever been. Sure, there are wars, and sure, there have been two massive wars in our last hundred years. But for the past few decades, statistically, we are the safest, richest lot of humans to ever live this world. And in Australia, especially so, right? We are the lucky country, as Australia likes to tell us. It is so safe here. We are too small and insignificant for even ISIS to want to bomb, right? And in Sydney, yes, but Brisbane, super safe, right? No one cares about this place. Nothing is big enough here to want to disrupt, right? Peace and security is the mantra of our city. Maybe Singapore too, KL, maybe not so much. Sorry to the Malaysians. But, you know, Brisbane, certainly, peace and security. You know, it makes us dull to the reality of Jesus' return, doesn't it? It makes us dull to the reality of his return. People are saying everything is fine, the business as usual. And then Paul says in verse 4, according to verse 4, he tells us that this peace and security will be shattered by the reality of sudden destruction that will come upon this world. Like labor pains when a pregnant woman is least expecting them, like kidney stones in the middle of the night waking you up that makes you go to hospital and miss preaching your sermon. Yes, that's right, Steve. When you listen to this, I'm talking about you, right? Unexpected. But it won't just be the pain of kidney stones or of childbirth, which ends up being joyful. The destruction that happens with Jesus' return for those who are not ready is going to be beyond excruciating. And Paul is saying that for brothers and sisters, for those who know and trust and love Jesus and who know his coming, we are not to be like that. In these verses, Paul makes clear a contrast between Christians and the rest of the world. Christians are not to be taken by surprise. We're not to live in darkness. We have been given the light of God himself. His son Jesus has come and shone darkness in our hearts 
to bring forgiveness of our sins, reconciliation with God, the Spirit of God as a seal and guarantee of our glorious future, eternal life to come, a new heavens and a new earth. That is light. But the darkness has none of that. The darkness are those people who choose to remain in sin, who choose to remain an enemy of God, to follow their sinful desires, to live in darkness, having Satan as their ruler, even though they don't say so or think so. To be in darkness is to be unaware and clueless about the sudden return of Jesus. And in a way, you're either in the light or in the dark, right? You're either in the day or in the night. You're either ready or you're not ready. And that is what Paul is stressing here in the next few verses, in verse 5 to 7. The key verse is verse 5, right? We are children of the light, children of the day, not of the night or darkness. There's a big contrast between us and the rest of the world. The difference between Christians and the world needs to be as obvious as light and day. Uh, night and day. To be children of the light means to belong to God. To be children of darkness means to belong to the world. And Paul uses another metaphor of sleep again, right? Verse 6. So then let us not sleep, as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. Now, the metaphor of sleep here is different from the one in verse 13 and 14, right? Here, sleep here isn't talking about a metaphor for death. Otherwise, the passage wouldn't make sense. Right? Verse 7 gives us the context of how sleep is being used here. Right? Sleep here is talking about nighttime, just as getting drunk is what you do at night. But we have to remember that we're not living in the night. We're not to be asleep or to be drunk. We are in the, in the daytime. We're people of the light. We are to be awake and to be sober. Right? To, to be asleep here means to be morally indifferent, to not care how you live. Someone who is sleeping doesn't have any particular care or concern for the dangers that surround them. Now, in Australia, it is compulsory <coughs> to have fire alarms in our homes, right? So every house uh, has to have a fire alarm. If you're renting a property and you don't see a little circular thing there, complain, right? To your landlord, you ought to have a fire alarm in your unit and your houses. Now, fire alarms or smoke alarms, more, more accurately, are there because, generally speaking, our sense of smell is diminished when we are asleep. And so we need the sensor to smell it for us, to warn us when the smoke has, 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 is, is present, which means there's a fire, right? Now, now the, the resurrection of Jesus is our smoke alarm. The smoke alarm has been triggered through the resurrection of Jesus because that guarantees the life that is to come and that signals that he will come back at any time. Right? The smoke alarm has gone in history. Now, when Paul talks about being drunk, He's not just talking about being al- uh, alcoholic here, right? He, being drunk here is like being asleep. It's about not caring, not being in control, right? Drinking is literally bad for you <clears throat> because it loses, you lose control, right? Uh, you, 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 you have the alcohol controlling you. They're not in control of their body and mind. They're not able to be ready for any danger that approaches. In the same way, spiritual drunkenness is also about not being in control, and not being ready for Jesus' return. And so Paul says, be awake, be sober. Do not be drunk, spiritually drunk, that is, living our lives uh, out of control, not being ready. And the contrast here is black and white, and night and day. 
<clears throat> Steve says here, there are a group of people over here living for themselves who do not care and are not ready for Jesus' return. And there are a group of Christians over here who are living for Jesus and are ready for his return at any moment. Now, I'm not sure what Steve means by over here. Does he mean over here in Thessalonica, uh, Thessalonica or does he mean over here in SLE Church? Or maybe he knows something I don't know about where you guys are living in light or darkness. But it doesn't matter whether it's Thessalonica or here, right? The warning is the same, isn't it? As Christians, as professing Christians, the reality is that we are either living in the light, getting ready, or we are not. And the warning is there for us. Now, so what does it look like to be ready? Verse 8 to 10 summarizes it for us. Right, firstly, in verse 8, to be ready is to be equipped with God's armor. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, how do you stay awake spiritually? You put on faith, and you put on love. Well, what does it mean to, to put on faith? It means to keep trusting in Jesus, and to grow that trust by getting to know Him more through His Word. What does it mean to put on love? It means to keep growing in your love for others as a way to show your love for God. Or put another way, to love God by showing love for others, right? Love. Keep growing that. You grow your hope in the future return of Jesus as you trust Him more and you love Him more and you look forward to His return more. Right? You pin your hopes on His return to be the end point of your faith. To know love eternal that will come with His coming. You know, a soldier gets ready for battle by getting his armor on. In the same way, a Christian faces life prepared for Jesus by putting on the armor of faith and love. Second thing here is in verse 9 and 10. Uh, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Right? We get ready by looking forward to the fulfillment and the finishing of what God has started in us. You see, are we saved by Jesus right now? Yes, right now we are saved. Will we be saved by Jesus on Judgment Day? Yes, we will. How do we know that we are right now saved? And how do we know that on Judgment Day we will be saved? It's because of what Jesus has already done in the past through His resurrection from the dead. Our present salvation and our future salvation are guaranteed by Jesus' already resurrection. Which is why when we talk about Christian hope, we're talking about certainty based on a past event, not wishy-washy, hopeful, empty thinking. Right? Certain hope that will be fulfilled. Which is why Paul says, be awake and be sober. And Steve leaves us with these questions, right? Uh, which we asked before already. Do you belong to the day or do you belong to the night? It's a warning as well as a promise. Right? A warning as well as a promise. See, the destiny of everyone uh, is judgment day. And the natural state of all human beings, as we've learned over and over again, is that we stand sinful before God. And we are those who, right from the beginning, from Adam and Eve, and every human person sins, has turned our backs on God in rebellion. We all start from the same starting point. We're all born with this bent towards rebellion against God. We're all responsible for our sins. 
none of us will be able to mount enough evidence on Judgment Day to show our good outweighing our bad because no good that we can do can make up for the way we've treated our Creator, our God. But in light of that coming day, God offers us salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. To get ready for His coming, if you're not yet a believer, is to put your trust in Jesus. For He has come to set aside the wrath of God, to bring you salvation, to get you ready for the return of our Creator, our King. Putting your trust in Jesus is as simple as saying sorry, thank you, and please. Right? Sorry for my sins and for rebelling against you. Thank you that Jesus has died to forgive me, that I can be in relationship with you. And please forgive me and please come live with me as uh, my king, as my father, and me as your child. That's how you get ready for his return. If you're still seeking after the faith, this is how you get ready. Now, if you're someone who's already believed in Jesus, then you get ready by living that out. Right? By, by putting on faith and putting on love, continuing on as a faithful disciple of Jesus, keeping your eye on the prize. It's been a big theme of our year this year, right? that the idea of heaven, we, we had a whole camp on it. And it's a good thing to keep re- reminding ourselves as we live in the peace and security of our present world, remember the judgment day, the eternity that is to come, and live in light of that. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you so much for the encouragement that it brings us, the certainty of Jesus' return, in such a way that we can live with hope, even in the face of grief and suffering that we face in this world, and also in the face of the peace and comfort and security that this world offers for us to be reminded of your son's return. We pray for us as we go through the sufferings and the trials and the pains of this life that you'll help us to keep holding on firm to our faith in Jesus. There will be those who grieve but those who have hope in our grieving. That our faith, that our, our grieving would never be despair, in despair and hopeless. We will not grieve in a way which would draw us away from you and away from our trust in the Lord Jesus. Instead, help us to understand the place of grief in this life. Help us to look forward to the new heavens and the new earth in which there will be no more grief and and pain and sadness and suffering. I pray for those here who are seeking after you that they will find you, that they will come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior and be prepared for his return. I pray for us who do believe in Jesus that you'll help us to live in the light as children of the light. Help us to be alert, awake, and sober as we live in this life. Help us not to get sucked in by the peace and security offered by this world, not to get lost in the pursuits of this world, not to lose our faith, not to lose our love for you and for others. Instead, help us to press on. To press on. We pray all this in Jesus' name.